I've been waiting, honestly, pretty impatiently to tell you about Alex Fack. I want to tell you about him because, for me, he's one of the biggest mysteries of the Nord Stream 2 project. And not in a bad way. Not in a way that he did something wrong or illegal, but that he might have been one of very few people who did something surprisingly right during the years the pipeline was coming together. I told you about Matthias Vanich, the managing director of Nord Stream 1, who also according to my source, Frank, did something right. Something dangerously right. Vanish pissed off the Russian side of the project by not giving them more contracts. Contracts that most likely would have been used for corruption, for kickbacks. In other words, for stealing money. After that decision, Vanish had to hire bodyguards to protect himself, according to Frank. And nobody expected that, to hear that Vanish, in particular, was another person who had done things the right way at his own risk. That's because he's been the target of U.S. sanctions, and everybody's been suspicious of Matthias Vanish since the early days of Nord Stream. For one thing, he's been close friends with Vladimir Putin for over 30 years. After Alex Fack made the decision that he made, one that seems like it was the right one, the right thing to do, Looking back now, I can't say whether or not he had to hire bodyguards, but he did get fired from his job. And today he no longer lives in Russia. And nobody really knows the full story. There were only a handful of articles published online about him getting fired back in 2018. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of how I tracked him down. You'll also hear from a few other people who, like Alex, spoke out against Nord Stream 2 before the project became such a colossal waste of money and time. People who nobody really listened to back when something could have been done to stop the project. I'm James Reed, and this is a special series from the Don't Show My Face podcast, Big Mistake. Sehr geehrte Damen und Herren, gerade eben sprach ich vor der Einheit der europäischen Kultur. Ladies and gentlemen, Excellencies, we've come to the high point of our ceremony. We're going to turn the wheel of history. The 8.8 billion euro Nord Stream project was agreed in 2005 by then Russian President Vladimir Putin and then German Chancellor Gerhard Schröder. Die Welt ist, meine Damen und Herren, viel, viel komplizierter geworden. Und in Nord Stream 2 muss man so umgehen, dass Gas durch diese Leitung fließen kann. We get the impression that our Ukrainian partners have boarded a train called cheap Russian gas and don't know what stop to get off at. He warned Ukrainians not to resist and to lay down their arms as columns of Russian armored vehicles rolled across Ukraine's borders. of what I know about Alex Fack, I know about him from what I've read and what I've found online, which is not very much. For one thing, I found exactly three photographs of Alex Fack. I'll describe two of them so you can kind of imagine what he looks like. The third one, it wasn't so easy to find, and it's from his personal life, so I'm going to leave that one out. 
but in another photograph, the one that I assume was his professional portrait that he used for his CV and for work, he's wearing a suit and a tie and looking very dour. The look on his face says, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this. He's got big ears and tufts of gray hair next to them, though he couldn't have yet turned 40 when the photo was taken. Everything is boyish about him, except those tufts of gray hair. The other photograph is from years earlier, from, I guess, around the late 2000s, when Alex Fack still hadn't turned 30. There he looks completely boyish. No gray hair, but also not as serious looking as he would look in the other picture taken 10 years later. He's got the faintest of smiles in this one, and he's wearing a blue sweater. But he does still have those same serious, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, eyes. Those eyes most likely served him well in his job. That's because as an investment analyst, Alex presumably told a lot of inconvenient truths. It's part of the job. One of the people I talked to in my reporting described analysts like Alex Fack this way. In my days in investment bank, I had a feeling that these financial guys, they live like in a separate universe, like astronauts flying above the globe. They are kind of closer to each other than to their affiliated countries because they, they, they are so isolated. That's Alona Osmolovska. And she knows what she's talking about because... Well, I, I worked with investors for 10 years, more or less, between 2004 and 2014. That's why she knows a bit about people like Alex Fack. So investment banking analysts are similar to scientists who believe in the truth and the numbers, and they do not care much about all the political wins. They see the numbers, they speak the truth. And she says that while you might find the scientifically-minded believers in numbers and truth fascinating, they are not celebrities. Hardly any of them ever get any public attention. And that seems to be what they prefer. So analysts are not looking for publicity. They are not looking for much recognition. They are working with the numbers. And mm. for me personally, probably the most admirable type of people in, the, in that whole industry. This group that Alona found most admirable in the investment banking world, these number-loving truth seekers known professionally as analysts, they were easy to admire from far away. But their aversion to publicity made it hard to do a story about one of them. You can have all the text in the world, but if you want to make a podcast, you need audio. So I called Alex Fack's office and I tried to get him on the phone. I didn't have his direct line, so I called the switchboard at the company where he works now, a company in Boston. That's not the actual call. It's just what it sounds like to call a number in the U.S. It's not the actual call because it's illegal to record phone calls and not inform the other side. I figured that on my first attempt, I shouldn't freak out his company by starting the call with something like, hey, is it all right if I record this? You know, I'm a reporter. I live in Germany trying to find out some stuff about this Russian gas company. So instead, when the receptionist answered... I said I wanted to talk to one of their analysts, 
a guy named Alex Fack. I don't know if you've ever tried to reach someone whose last name is one letter short of being the word fake. It's a bit awkward. She didn't recognize the name at first. I guess he doesn't get that many calls, or maybe she was just new. She didn't sound new, though. She sounded tough and seasoned, and she wanted to know exactly who I was and what I wanted. I told her as politely and concisely as I could that I was a podcast producer, that Mr. Fack had written a paper in 2018, and I would like to speak with him about it. She thought about it, or she was looking something up. After the silence, she told me she would put me through, and the phone started ringing again. Alex didn't pick up, but I did hear his voice for the first and only time on his answering machine. I wish I had a recording of that to play for you, but I don't. Maybe one day he'll give me permission to do that. We are in contact, but I'm going to get to that later. For now, I've just have to describe his voicemail message for you. He sounded like he looked in his picture, busy, to the point, if not cold, and as if he were just about to be on his way to deliver some complicated news and didn't have time for formalities. His voicemail message informed the caller not to leave a message, but to send an email. That was it. As far as I remember, there was not even a hello or goodbye. No, this is Alex Fact. Just the message to not leave a message, but to send an email instead. So I sent him one. Hi, Alex. My name is James Reed. I'm a freelance journalist in Frankfurt, Germany. I called today trying to reach you because I wanted to speak with you about the reports you wrote back in 2017, 2018. I know you've never given an interview on this subject, but I thought I'd give it a try. Would love to speak with you. Best, James. But I still haven't told you why I wanted to get in touch with Alex Fack in the first place or why he got fired from the Russian bank that he used to work at as an analyst. Alona knew about him and his story, and she told me her summary of the events. So this guy who wrote this report, he was fired, not after the report was written, but after it was leaked to the media. So unfortunately for him, it got out of this financial bubble into the regular political media, and people started questioning, hey, you're telling us that these pipelines are so important and this is such a good commercial deal. How? That is essentially why I wanted to get in touch with Alex Fack. He was one of the people, one of the experts who warned that these pipelines, as Alona says, including the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, could end up being a big mistake. You might remember that in the first episode, I said we wanted to talk to those experts, the ones who said it would be a mistake. And Alex Fack was at the top of my list for reasons that I'll get to in a minute. But he was also my top pick because he got fired for his report. That sounded like the kind of easy to relate to human story that would be good for a podcast series. Guy gets fired for telling what now, looking back, seems to have been the obvious, if not inconvenient, truth. But I thought that to tell his story the right way, I needed Alex's voice. And all I had was his answering machine message so far. 
So I waited for a reply from my email. And I talked to other people, other experts who had cited Alex Fack's report in their own research. And, and let's start with this paper, which you mentioned in your paper as well. So it was a report done by Alex Fack. And could you talk about when you first read the paper and what your takeaways were and how you interpreted it at the time when it came out in 2018? I did, I did my research and then was really, as you probably as well, surprised. Wow. That wow was from Jörg Himmelreich. He's a German law professor who has devoted a significant chunk of his professional career to writing and giving interviews about the risks of doing business with Russia. He cited Alex Fack's report in 2020 in a paper that Jörg published about the legal issues relating to Nord Stream 2. It's a real short mention that he gives to Alex Fack. He doesn't even mention his name, but it's still quite glowing and a powerful one. Even the Russian state bank Sberbank complained quite courageously from within the Putin system that Gazprom could not make a profit from the construction of Nord Stream 2, but that the pipeline only served geopolitical interests and supply line for a small, close group of Russian suppliers. There's a lot to unpack there. Most expert papers are like that. They're dense. Because smart people try to cram years' worth of research, analytical thought, and understanding into a few sentences on the page. So let's break that long, complex sentence down. And no moaning and groaning, all right? You can do this. So it starts... Even the Russian state bank Sperbank complained... Even the Russian state bank Sperbank complained... Let's just stop there. The Russian state bank, Sperbank. That's the name of the bank Alex Fack was working for as an analyst astronaut when he published his report. It's the biggest in Russia and nearly 200 years old. It's a huge financial institution and it's owned by the Russian government. So the fact that they published Alex's report, a report where he was complaining about another state-owned business is fucking crazy. Okay, I promise not to use Alex's last name, you know, in that jokey way too much, but it's really hard to resist, to be honest with you. And more serious journalists than me have also fucking done so. Anyways, let's move on. Even the Russian state bank Sberbank complained quite courageously from within the Putin system. Here, Jörg is saying that Alex Fack was courageous to write what he wrote since he worked at a state-owned bank. And it's dangerous to say certain things inside Russia, like to say the following thing. That Gazprom could not make a profit from the construction of Nord Stream 2. That Gazprom could not make a profit from the construction of Nord Stream 2. That's right. Alex said courageously from inside the Russian system that Nord Stream 2 was a project that would not make money for Gazprom. In case you forgot, Gazprom is the Russian, also state-owned energy giant who wanted to build Nord Stream 1 and 2 in the first place because then they could pump their own gas through it to Germany and to Europe. So Jörg goes on. But that the pipeline had only served geopolitical interests and supply line for a small, close group of Russian suppliers. But that the pipeline only served geopolitical interests and supply line for a small, closed group of Russian suppliers. The first part of that you might 
already know or have heard. The idea that Russia only wanted pipelines to Germany for political reasons, not economic ones. Though I think everyone assumes they would still make money off the pipelines. What Alex Fack said that was so radical was that not only would they not make money, but their motivation for doing it wasn't just politics. It was so they could hook up these suppliers, as Jörg calls them, or contractors, as Alex Fack called them, so that they could hook up this, quote, small, closed group, basically friends of Gazprom, with sweet deals that they could make money off of. You might still be lost, and that's okay, because none of this makes any sense when you first hear it. That's part of why it's so shocking, because it doesn't make sense for a company like Gazprom, a giant in the gas industry, to build an enormous project, like a 1,200-kilometer pipeline that won't make them any money. Why would they do that? And what's more, them doing something so confusing, it wasn't a secret. It was common knowledge, more or less. Everybody knew this. All that Alex Fack did, Alona said, was have the courage to write it down on paper. He just wrote it down in a report, Mm. like very objectively, uh, unemotionally analyzing the financial condition of the company. And he said, listen, uh, Gazprom is just dumping money on this. Just dumping money into pipeline projects like Nord Stream 2, throwing money away for no good reason. Alex even put a table in his report that was titled, Which one of Gazprom's current projects is the worst? Which of Gazprom's current projects is the worst? And then it shows the cost versus the number of years that it will take to break even. And for the power of Siberia pipeline, it was going to take 16 years to break even. For Turkish stream, he calculated it would take 47 years to break even. There he breaks down the profitability and sense or senselessness of three pipeline projects. One of them was Nord Stream 2. And for Nord Stream 2, that it would take 20 years. And I'm not a financial expert. In fact, a lot of the sections of this paper, I can't pretend to really understand what they're about. But when you look at this table, it's pretty clear that Nord Stream 2 was not going to be a good deal for Gazprom. More or less, he admitted that the pipelines were like not a commercial deal. So the numbers Alex crunched, they look really bad. One of the other pipelines would take even longer, 50 years to break even. By then, most of the investors would be dead. That's a pretty bad financial forecast. If you're going to be dead by the time the thing you invested in actually sends some money back your way. There's also the percentage for the internal rate of return. Just don't ask me what that means exactly because I can't give you a great explanation of it. According to Google, a good IRR, as it's called in the analyst world, is 20% or higher. According to Alex Fack, Nord Stream 2 had an IRR of only 3%. I couldn't find anywhere or anyone who recommended investing in a project with a number that low. Gazprom was just dumping money on this. The pipelines weren't a commercial deal. They were something else. 
They were a money dump. Gazprom might as well have driven to the ocean and thrown briefcases full of cash into the lapping waves. And in a way they did, because billions of euros that Gazprom paid for Nord Stream 2 are now sunken on the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Today, it's, it's never going to break even because it's just sitting on the bottom of the Baltic yeah. Sea. Alona and I talked about how that's one thing Alex Fack couldn't see coming. The fact that the IRR for the Nord Stream 2 project would end up being 0% in 2022. So he was overly optimistic. <laughs> exactly. But who throws 5 billion euros into the sea for no good reason? Well, according to Alex Fack, Gazprom had a very bad reason for doing it. That bad reason was corruption. Many, many contractors of Gazprom are getting huge kickbacks. Now, to be fair, Alex Fack didn't use the word kickbacks or the word corruption in his report. And I'm going to stop right here in the middle of the story to focus on the word that he did use. The one word that I would argue is the one that got him fired. I've got his report here in front of me. I printed this out at a local copy store along with another one of his reports without really realizing how long they were. Together, they're about 100 pages long. But on the fourth page of the report we're focusing on today, that's where you're going to find the word that Alex Fack chose to use instead of using corruption or kickbacks. I could paint a lot of analogies for you to describe how powerfully dangerous and brilliant this word is. But the one I'm going to go with is a tennis analogy. So bear with me, but tennis is the only sport I can think of where it's seen as a stroke of a master player to do what's called painting the lines. Did it find the line? Did it touch the line? Oh, is it in? It's in! It's in! Nadal is looking down. He cannot believe it. One millimeter in. In other words, to have your shot land right on the line or even on the edge of the line. This is one even if you don't watch tennis as rapidly as I do, you've probably seen a game on a TV at the airport or at a restaurant and seen the Hawkeye computer system. It's basically an animation that they show on screen that is used to tell whether a ball landed in or out. I thought he, he thought that was long. It sailed and then dipped down, and Federer hoping that it's long because it's a couple of break points. Sure is a big call. That is for sure, and it is not in. And sometimes it proves that a shot just barely kissed the line, but that still counts. That ball is in. Did it find the line? Did it touch the line? Oh, is it in? It's in! It's in! I mean, the one that I'm looking at now in this clip, it's, it's basically just the width of a hair. That's how much the ball actually touched the line, but it was still counted as in. Shots like that are often called winners 
because there's not much you can do to return them back over the net if somebody hits a ball straight on the line on your side of the court. They just scorch by you. And Alex Feck, he slammed a fecking winner. One that screamed straight down the lip of the line using just one relatively obscure word. He called what Gazprom was doing a boon doggle. That's right, boondoggle. B-O-O-N-D-O-G-G-L-E. Maybe you don't see the greatness of that word right away. Poetry often needs context for you to be able to get it. And to be honest with you, I didn't even know what the word meant before I read it in Alex's report. I had to look it up. A boondoggle is something that is a, quote, wasteful or extravagant project with no practical value. Sound familiar? More or less, he admitted that the pipelines were, like, not a commercial deal. And what's more, a boondoggle, quote, carries at least a whiff of corruption. That definition is from politicaldictionary.com. And I love the phrase they chose, whiff of corruption, because that's probably all Alex Fack could manage to sneak into his report. Just a whiff of corruption. If you were an analyst in Russia, you couldn't just come out and say that Gazprom was corrupt. That would have been a shot over the line. You couldn't use the word Alona used either, the word kickbacks. That would be way outside the line. Many contractors of Gazprom are getting huge kickbacks. But Alex Fack seems to have known the political tennis court inside Russia very well. He knew where those lines were, and he chose the word boondoggle and landed a shot so close to the line. I'm not even sure Hawkeye could have helped him resolve the argument that erupted after that ball fell on the court. I can tell you that in the end, it was called out. Alex Fack got fired for his shot. He got fired for saying that Gazprom was throwing away money on projects like Nord Stream 2 and that they were doing it so that That money could land in the pockets of Russian contractors, a group that Jörg Himmelreich called a small closed group. And a lot of the members of that small group are what we call oligarchs. We also have another word for them or another phrase. We call them friends of Vladimir Putin. A week after my first call, an email to Alex Fack, I still had no response. So I called his office again. This time, the secretary recognized me. 
She asked if I was the same guy who had called the week before. I told her my story about Alex's answering machine message and unanswered email. She asked me again what exactly it was that I wanted. I started rambling about Gazprom, kickbacks, IRRs, and God knows what else, and she stopped me to make clear that she really only needed a summary. I said something like that it was about Russian oil and gas. She said she'd pass my information on to Alex. But my inbox stayed empty. I even looked up where Alex had gone to college, and I called just about everyone all the professors in the economics department trying to find anyone who might remember Alex. I didn't get anyone on the phone. Hi, Professor Green. My name is James Reed, and I'm a podcast journalist. But some professors did answer my emails. To see if you would remember a student who... None of them remembered Alex Fack. They did look up his records, and multiple professors emphasized to me... Alex seems to have been a really good student. The only person I've ever spoken to who does remember Alex Fack is Ben Aris, the guy from episode one, the energy expert who lives in Berlin and used to live in Moscow. He told me Alex worked for him, that he gave Alex his first job before Alex went off to be an analyst in Russia. He said that Alex Fack was incredibly smart and he was sad to see him go. He always wanted to have Alex do a column for his online news blog, and he wanted to call it FAC News. You get it? FAC News. Alex apparently also worked at the news organization, The Financial Times, for a very short period of time before his analyst days. I contacted several people there, but no one remembered him. And the ones who might remember him didn't return my messages or calls. I was desperate, so I went back again to the reports themselves, and I tried to figure out what kind of a person Alex was or is just from looking at his writing. One thing I can tell you is that he seems to like comedy. You can tell because the title of the report that got him in so much trouble, that got him fired, it's a title taken from a documentary, one that was about this Egyptian political comedian who you might have heard about, who had a show on Egyptian television that was compared at the time to The Daily Show in the U.S. Bassem Youssef is known as Egypt's John Stewart. 30 million viewers for his weekly program. 40% of the entire population is watching. It's someone who's saying things that are similar to what we're saying to each other, things that are not usually on TV. I think it's very brave. That's from the documentary. Again, it's called Tickling Giants. And Alex named his report after it as a sort of pop culture Easter egg for those curious enough to look into it, to Google the phrase. The satire gets you into trouble. I'll tell you this, it doesn't get me into the kind of trouble it gets you into. He drops a lot of these Easter eggs. In another report, he even drops the name Borat. And this, what is this? Cheese also. And what is this one? That's cheese. This one over here, what is it? Cheese. And this? That's cheese. That's right, that Borat. And also this Borat. Yakshamash, when you are sick in USNA, you do not drink soup made from retard boy's pubis. Instead, you go to a magician called a doctor. 
I'm guessing most investment analysts don't slip that kind of stuff into their reports, but maybe they are a rowdier bunch than we all realize. So I started to think, maybe I should do something different. Maybe I should do something like the kind of thing Borat would do to get his attention. I had nothing to lose. And I didn't go quite as far as Sasha Baron Cohen probably would, but my first email had been rather formal and standard. And the second one I sent to him was, well, not so much. Dear Alex, I tried to reach you again this week with no luck. Let me just email you a list of basic questions I have for you and know that it would be, you know, like totally and infinitely awesome if you could respond to any slash all of them. Were you born in Russia? Is your That's right. I wrote to Alex Fack that it would be like totally and infinitely awesome if he could answer some or all of my questions. I sent it and I went to bed. You're a smart guy. Why finance? Why oil and gas? The next morning, I woke up at 5 a.m. and checked my phone on the way to the bathroom. And there it was. A reply from Alex Fack. Going back, though, to Alex's report. What does Alona mean exactly when she says that everyone knew, but only Alex wrote it down in a report? It was common knowledge, more or less. Everybody knew this. Well, I can tell you that the kickback slash corruption culture in Russia seems to be an open secret. And I can tell you that the members of the Nord Stream project, at least one of them who I spoke to, he knew about the culture inside Russia. My source, Frank, used the word kickback in reference to what he called the Russian side's operating procedures without me ever asking about corruption. He brought it up on his own. He told me a story about someone from the Russian side calling one day and asking how his side, what you could call the German slash Swiss side of the project, they asked on the phone how they were handling their kickbacks. No one knew exactly what to reply because according to Frank, their side had no kickback schemes running. There was no dirty money on their side of the project. The Russian side didn't quite believe it, but apparently they spoke very openly about kickbacks. That's how used to a corrupt system they were. And I can tell you that a copy of Alex Fack's report was sent to Boris Johnson. He asked for letters, for statements from Baltic countries back in 2018, for statements that would reflect how they felt about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Finland and Poland, as well as many other countries, sent letters, some opposed, some on the fence. Ukraine didn't send a letter, as far as I can tell. Instead, they sent Alex Fack's report. The word boondoggle, the table about Gazprom's bad investments, all of it. Not only that, but they sent a paper by Alona. In fact, that's how I found her. Her paper was among those documents as well. It's one about the Ukrainian gas energy sector versus the Russian gas sector. At that time, she'd moved out of investment banking and was working for Naftogas, which is the main gas company in Ukraine. 
And despite me calling the British Parliament repeatedly and emailing them to confirm that these documents were sent to Boris Johnson, they never replied. Alona confirmed the story, though, at least about her paper being sent on behalf of the Ukrainian embassy. Now remember that our embassy asked for materials to uh, answer this call from Boris Johnson, and probably that's, that's how it got there. She herself spoke out against Nord Stream 2 and Gazprom, and she suffered a consequence, just like Alex Fack. I got on Russia's sanctions list. For the report that you wrote that I found? Yes. I cannot imagine anything else I could have done so that I get into the Russian sanctions list. There are about 900 people in Ukraine, including all kinds of MPs and ministers and public servants who are on the list, and I'm none of them. For me, it's kind of a acknowledgement to the fact that this report is correct. And Jörg, too. He's not been so popular in his home country of Germany since he started speaking out against Nord Stream and Gazprom all the way back in 2006. The German community, I was the black sheep. I asked him how it felt now, though, to have been proven right after all these years. Well, let me ask you, if you were sort of a black sheep during this whole time, does it feel good now to have been right <laughs> or to be sort of justified? Yeah, to, I must well, <laughs> I can't, can't uh, avoid uh, to have a kind of relief, even if it's coming up to such a terrible result. He didn't gloat. He was just relieved that things were finally changing. Yeah, it's kind of a relief and there's no kind of schadenfreude, but I'm quite optimistic. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled by the policy of the Green Party and uh, Ms. Baerbock and, and Habeck. They do the real policy you expect usually from the normal government parties. Yeah. In fact, no one that I spoke to, none of the experts who warned against doing business with Russia gloated or said, we told you so. One guy, when I asked him how it felt, just humbly said, quote, you win some, you lose some. And that was it. Alex Fack also didn't gloat about the fact that recent history has now painted his 2018 analysis in a new light. But I'm going to tell you what he did say. And we're going to revisit the contractor that got the deal to build steel pipes for Nord Stream 1 and 2 next time on Big Mistake. What you do when the fire tore through your little town? Did you pull down to the general store and carry your feet down? I want to take a moment at the end of the show to again thank all of the experts that I talked to for this episode. I didn't end up using a lot of those interviews because this episode was mostly about Alex Fack and my story of tracking him down. However, I do plan to use that interview material in future episodes because they had a lot of interesting things to say. I'm going to put a link to their papers in the show description notes. This week's episode was produced by me, James Reed. Special thanks, as always, to Julia Carbonaro and Paulina Lau. We had original music from Husky Gawenda, additional original music by Evan Lawrence, and original music from Lezik Amodada. Our cover art is from a Ukrainian artist, and we're going to put a link to her website in the description. You can follow us on Twitter at DSMF Podcast or on Instagram at Don't Show My Face Podcast, all one word. This has been a 
episode of Don't Show My Face, a podcast from Invisible Pictures Germany 2022. Thanks for listening and take care. Thank you.